This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, we are coming up on what, for the two of us combined, is a busy conference schedule. Yes. Uh, I am next week going to be in Germany for the Frankfurt Book Fair. Holy crap! So oh that's, my God. that's going to be fun. I'm excited about that. I'm excited for you. Yes. So what that probably means is we're not going to have a show next week um, with that in mind, because I'm not sure that we're going to be able to pull off any recording while I'm in Germany. Probably is possible. But that would I, be hilarious if we did. But having <laughs> lived in Germany and still having extended family in Germany, I can tell you that the time difference is a bit of a but. Well, actually, it would be perfect because about the time I'm getting up is about the time you're getting up. But I would be six hours ahead, right? I think it's like eight or nine hours. Well, oh, okay. it's from here. It's eight or nine hours or something. I don't know. But I, I could be wrong. I, I will can, know no, when I'm there. The flight. the flight is eight, nine hours. So, no, you're right. It might be six hours. So, anyway, I am really excited about that. And then after the Frankfurt Book, Pair, Book Fair comes the big event in Dallas. Yeah, BoucherCon, which I'm very excited for. And also dreading, and I, I'm only dreading it because I dread all events before I show up to them. <laughs> but I've been to BoucherCon enough times to know that it is always a good time for me. Even the worst one I've ever been to, which was this last one in St. Petersburg. And the reason it was the worst for me is because of the mental and emotional place I was with in trying to get writer, uh, Liar's Legacy written. I was not in a good place. And... Um, and, and I didn't really have any energy to spare, and I still had a good time there. So um, if even the worst of it was not great, then I know that, I mean, yeah, it was, yeah, it was okay. Then I know that now that I'm like starting to come out of it and I'm like, my, I'm coming back to life again, um, it's going to be like, yay, I get to see all my friends again once a year, see my friends. Um, and I also know the hotel where it's being held here in Dallas. And um it's a, the thing about BoucherCon is like everything happens in the bar. Like the bar is where everybody congregates in the evening after they get back from doing dinner or going out with agents or whatever. Um, so if you're looking for anywhere, the bar is where it's all happening. And so the quality of the conference is often determined by the quality of the bar. <laughs> and to, just to put this in perspective for you, um, in, in New Orleans, uh, when it was held there, I think 2016 or something like that, the, the wait staff told us that even Mardi Gras people weren't as uh, heavy drinkers, or I don't remember the exact terminology, but e even the Mardi Gras people couldn't compete with what they were dealing there at the conference with the authors. There's so many people at the bar. And then, so every BoucherCon that comes along, the the organizers because they're always organized by different people they know now from history you've got to inform the hotel you've got to let them know make sure you have everybody on staff for these nights you are going to be you do, you think you've seen 
a, a rough conference. You you have no idea what's about to hit you. You've got to you've got to be prepared for this. And inevitably, the the hotel people be like, yeah yeah yeah, we've got it. But sometimes they don't got it. Sometimes it truly hits them by surprise. So that's kind of a sense of where the where the focal point is at these conferences, and it's just like this massive loud party. So if you've got a bar that is you know just kind of tucked away in a corner somewhere, it's it's not a great time because you're all elbow to elbow and squeezed in. And but the bar here in Dallas at, at the Hyatt Regency where this is held, it's so open. It like it it fills the center of the atrium. I guess it's an atrium sort of level, like the the rooms from 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 the rooms as you go up it's open down the center and you look down you can see the bar and it's just this massive sort of semicircle open space and and the bar fills like a huge swath of the back wall and and i saw that before i knew that um Bajikon was going to be here in Dallas and I was like that would be a great place <laughs> for a Bajikon bar <laughs> so I'm really excited about it not even because I drink that much I, I actually don't but because I know that that's the gathering place that's the watering hole that's where everybody's going to be and because it's open like a ballroom in many ways um there will be a, a way to just hang out and and relax and chill and have fun and, and just have conversations and stuff and so that's what I'm looking forward to all right, and I, I am really curious to see what I think about Khan and where, where the action really is because we are at the opposite end of the spectrum on this. I am not a bar person, and there's no way I will be in a crowded bar at, you know, late at night no matter what's going on. Um, I, you know, if you were to ask me that anyway, to, to go on after Khan, I think um, – but I want to know if we were to ask you. First, tell us that. <laughs> well, I'm going to get to that because okay. – All right. So um, Bouchercon is six days after the Frankfurt Book Fair, after I get back from the Frankfurt Book Fair. Oh, my Fair. God. You're going to be jet lagging. And then um, on November 10th, which is about a week after Bouchercon, is 20 Books to 50K, which is a conference oh that I go to every year in Las Vegas. And You'd so, be really glad you're an extrovert because yeah, – That might even wear me out. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, if you were to ask me, where's the action at 50, uh, 20 books to 50K, I would say it's at breakfast. Oh, okay. And that's interesting. that's because there are a few people who started getting together for breakfast, and then the breakfast table started getting bigger and bigger and bigger as people realized, oh, oh there's all kind of stuff that's happening down there for breakfast. And there probably is all kinds of stuff happening in various bars late at night. But from my perspective, everything that happens is happening at breakfast. At Interesting. Because <laughs> see, like, there have been times at Boucher Khan where Boucher Khan has been held in split hotels because the city didn't have a single hotel that was big enough to host the entire conference. Mm -hmm. And when you bump into your friends here or there, you're like, which one is the bar? <laughs> Which one is the bar? And it's not because you want to go drink. It's because you want to be where everybody else is, right? So anyway, um, the the conference hotel, I think it sold out completely. Like they booked the entire hotel. And the Hyatt Regency is not a small hotel. And it booked, it sold out already in September of last year or 
or something ridiculous. Or maybe it was uh, December, by December of... of yeah, I remember getting year. an email was, saying, if you're not going to use your room, if you've re- reserved more than one yeah. room, let us know because we need the rooms. Yeah, they, they filled that thing. So it's going to be a big one because it's the 50th uh, anniversary. So I just want to put a call out to anybody who's within driving distance of Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, it, it, come swing by bar. You know, plan. You don't even have to stay at the hotel or you don't even have to register. Just come swing by the bar. Um, parking might be a little bit difficult in that area, but the, the public transport does run real close by to it. Um, there's lots of stuff to do in that area. Dallas has become one of the top cities in the United States for foodies. So um, there's, there's lots of stuff to do if you like to eat. Uh, other than that, it's a pretty boring city. Uh, but yeah, if you're in the general vicinity and you want to just check this out and go rub shoulders with some very more famous than me writers, um, come, come check it out. Just stop by. You don't need a badge to get into the hotel. Just if you want to go to any of the panels and stuff. Or if you want to hang out with the people who don't hang out at the bars, check out the breakfast places. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now I got, now I got to look at this and see what exactly is he talking about here? All right. So anyway, that's the conference schedules. There's a lot happening. And remember, uh, BoucherCon really is, is a – it's the fans' conference, right? Yes, that is the fans' so, conference. Uh, you, so many people who come are actually there as readers, not as authors, which makes it fun for me as an author because as much as I love my author friends, they're not the ones – with very few exceptions – they're not the ones reading my books. It's – fans who are reading my book. So those are the people that I want to interact with. Yeah. And I am very excited to be there for the first time. So it's kind of a bucket list thing for me to finally make it to BoucherCon. So I'm really excited about that. All right. We have a topic for today. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. Yes. After all of this, I was listening to something the other day and I, I heard a reference to this book called Finding Your Why. It was written by Simon Sinek. It's sort of a business book. Well, it's totally a business book, but I it's, guess it's kind of a life book too. But it got me thinking about the number of ways that authors could use the idea of finding your why, um, whether it's why am I writing or why am I including this character you know, we, we kind of got into some of this with Kill Your Darlings last week. Uh, why am I writing this particular story? Why am I choosing this setting? So I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that in, in terms of planning, because I know, Taylor, you you do a lot of planning before you start writing because you understand how much of yourself you're going to put into a book. And so how much of how much of the various whys do you consider what, before you actually make a decision to start writing something? Well, the why am I doing this is kind of a given. You know, I do it because I have to don't really have an option to pay the bills any other way. Um, most authors have a fallback career or something that brought them into writing, something they can do again. And, you know, you know my story. So, you know, I don't have a plan B. So writing is my income. Um, it's, I do it because it's the only thing, I don't say it's the only thing I'm good at. It's it's the one thing that I'm really, really good at that I feel, um, if I wasn't doing it anymore, people would miss me. I mean, the literary world is so full of newcomers. There, there's a flood of people pouring into it every year 
that I would be deluding myself to think that if I went away, it wouldn't matter at all. It wouldn't. I would be re replaced in a heartbeat. There's this um, there's this uh, poem, and I, I used to know it. It's been 30 years since I've reviewed it. But it basically, it's, it's a bucket of water. And, you know, every time you start getting a big head and thinking that you're so important, you stick your hand in that bucket of water and pull it out, and the hole that's left is how much you're going to be missed, right? <laughs> and it, that that is so very true about the writing world. But I, so I don't have any idea like you guys are all going to miss me when I'm gone. But there are readers for whom I have made an impact in their life and for whom they personally would feel sad if there were no more of my books available to them into the future. And so in that sense, I know that it is the one thing I do that actually has made a difference and it matters and it feels a little bit silly to think of that because all I do is tell stories. But so it's I'm an entertainer. It's not like I've offered a cure for cancer or anything. But there's an emotional connection between some of the things that my characters deal with and what's going on in other people's lives. And it's the, the work has given people strength. It has given people um, the ability to connect with another human being in ways that they didn't think that they could. And those small things, those very small things are the, the way that I know that I have made a difference in the world. And so to walk away from that and not do that anymore is like, well, what are you going to replace it with? You know, everybody needs to know that they matter in some way. Right. So those are my, you know, meta picture wise. And they're, they're just kind of a given. But when it comes down to the actual nitty gritty and the storytelling, um, why actually drives everything in story building for me? Why did this happen? Why is this character doing this? Why did this, you know, why is this the right city to set this? Why, 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 why? And all that plot building, I see those unanswered whys as plot holes. So f figuring out those plot holes, answering those whys is critical to me in terms of building a believable story in a very fantastical, unbelievable world. So to answer your question about how many and how much of those whys? Well, all of them and in everything. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I mean, it's interesting that you you point out that you use the whole the why technique as a way of finding plot holes. Um, let's go back to to the first Jack and Jill book. Before we do that, though, okay. Can you explain for our listeners and for me a little bit more of the the premise behind this? Why? Like, what? what is it? I know it's a business book, but applicable to the lives that we live here and the stories that we're telling, what is it that is the foundation of the, you know, the question, the material? Well, I mean, it's essentially that if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, then you can't be doing it as well as someone who does know the why. And if you don't know the why behind your plans, your actions, um, it, it just... It, it cheapens everything that you do, it, or it, it kind of sucks some of the life out of what you're doing. And if you do know the why behind it, uh, you know, the little things that go wrong in life are, are easier to step over um, as, as opposed to being believer. completely derailed. I am a firm believer in that concept. Uh, that has been a, not that I've ever read the book, but it has been a driving force in so much of me 
figuring out what next in life or or what my priorities are is is answering those why. So I'm very excited about this. Yeah, I mean, it, it is totally – one of the things that make great business books like this that are sort of inspiring and sort of helpful is that they're just – common sense. It's a simple idea that's applied over and over and over again, chapter after chapter. And, you know, you get to the end and it just reinforces what you already know. But there are 20 examples of someone asking the right questions of themselves and getting, using, using the response to those questions to further their lives or their career or their business or, you know, whatever it may be. And it, it, in, in our case, it could be the writing. So I, I, I so going I, to Jack and Jill. Yeah. So I, I get back to Jack and Jack and Jill. I know we've talked about this a little bit, but I want to get into the why of of this. You had, you had for whatever reason, you had a desire to write. I mean, you write thrillers, so I mean that's yeah. what you do, and and your characters are violent, and they have these skills. The easy thing to do is to have two characters who are special forces people and, you know, sort of explains everything about them and then you just get on with the story. Um, You did not take that approach. Why? Okay. I think we might have even done a show about this once. Either that or you and I had a very fascinating conversation. We have talked about it, but, I mean, I want to know, like, the actual why. The actual reason why is because I looked at – what it was that made me different than everybody else. Like I knew that I could technically write more of the same. I knew that those are the popular books. Those are really easy for publicists to uh, categorize and they do comps. If you like this, then this, everything in publishing is based off of comps. They can't, if, if they can't tell a reader, Hey, if you like this, then this, then it's like, how do you even promote it? How do you slot it on a shelf? How do you sell it to the sales staff who has to sell it to their sales channels or whatever? Everything is off comps. And it's really easy when you have a character that is, you know, special forces or military or detective because everybody knows what to do with that. Not even just the readers. Like, readers will know what to expect when they walk into a story and and having a sense of what to expect, that's why we have genre, right? People get a, a sense of what it is they like to read and they go back for more of that because it's very enjoyable to them. And and so it's very easy to categorize a story that has, you know, a CIA officer or, you know, a broken down detective or whatever, because it's been done so many times. And so you're trying to do a different take on it. And so even though I'm not any of those things, I know how to do research and I could create one of those things a lot of authors do who haven't been, uh, you know, special forces or CIA or whatever. They, they still create believable characters. I knew I could do it too. But I got to thinking about what it was about my characters that was their unique thing. And it's that they are unique characters. They are not characters that you will ever find anywhere else in any other books. They, they have always been trailblazers. And I, I knew I would be making it harder for myself to go that route, but I also knew that it would be more authentic and it would, I could more authentically write a character like that simply because 
I am more authentically not like everybody else. Um, so that was my why. My why was why if I've, if I've thus far been true to myself and written characters based off of where my imagination went, why would I go put myself in the same mold as everybody else just because that's what everybody else is doing? Yes, it's easier in the sense of it's easier to sell your work, but that would be not being true to who I am as a person because I've always been the type that if everybody's going that way, I'm going to go the other way just because I don't like to follow a crowd. It makes life hard. <laughs> but um, th So I was like, well, why would I start now doing, doing what's not me? If being me is just going to be hard, well, at least it's authentic. So let's do it the hard way. And off we went. Okay. So the settings for some of your books are in unique places. Uh, the first one, I, I, I think you've told the story and, and, uh, and I've, I've read about it, where the whole idea was you had been to Equatorial Guinea. You'd spent time there. And so it was easy to, easy to select that unique setting and start a story there. Not that it actually started actually, there. Actually, that, that setting was my why for writing the first book. It was, nobody would believe this. Like, I, it, like when you, okay, so Equatorial Guinea, living in Equatorial Guinea was actually rather traumatic for me. And, and I, I've told people this, and it's hard to wrap your brain around it, but I was, had more PTSD and more uh, messed upness from living in Equatorial Guinea than I did from my entire year of living in the cult. Like, it's a different kind of trauma, but it was trauma nonetheless. And um, even to this day, all these years later, I still occasionally have dreams where I'm stuck there and I can't get out. So it was a very, very traumatic situation uh, living there for me because we, in many ways we were trapped. You're on this island. We couldn't get off. I had a baby. We didn't have a lot of money. We had these obligations that we had to fulfill because we'd raised money. Uh, we didn't have money ourselves, but we had raised money for these projects. Um, the, the government was doing everything in their power to make life difficult for us. There was not a day that went by that wasn't some kind of struggle, uh, even just existing, like, you know, finding the water you needed to wash your clothes or the, the power going out or just paying your bills. Nightmare, you couldn't just go and pay your bills. The person had to be in, but they just happened to not be in that day. So you had to come back again another day. Or, hey, we need an exit stamp in our passport um, because the flight is leaving on tomorrow. And the person said, the person decided, has to put the passport in their pocket and go visit their village for the weekend. And so now you don't even have a passport for that flight. And somehow you got to track down that person just by word of mouth and figuring out where they live so you can get your passport back. I mean, just insanity like that. It never ended. And, and so for me, the way that I've always dealt with trauma was talking about it, finding, finding a clear path to understanding what exactly happened and why. And and, and dealing with it that way, which actually is what trauma therapy is all about. And then getting that, um, the validation, you know, that, that it's real, it happened, you're not crazy and whatever. And so for me, Equatorial Guinea was still so fresh and so alive. And when I realized that I wanted to write a book, it was, that's what I wanted to write about this place. I want to, to, I don't want to say purge the demons. It wasn't about that. It's just like, I've got to talk about this place. I've got to talk about these insane things that I lived through. And so that became, that became my why for writing that book. Interesting. 
the next books going forward, you you have you you talked quite a bit in in a recent email that you sent out to uh, to people on your email list about the idea that you had this one big story, and so you, you can't. I had one yeah, idea. Yeah, okay, so you had one so you had idea. One idea. And so then that there there were more there was more required of you than one book. So then how did you pick the next spot and the next spot and the next spot? How do you how do you make that decision and why? Well, the, the second book was pretty straightforward. Is I had one more thing I needed to write. About. <laughs> yes, that was yes, that one was pretty straightforward. Yes. Yeah. But after that, it was really a matter of, you know, I had to I had to define things that I felt were worthwhile enough that I wanted to invest my time in writing about. And um, so the the doll took was dealt with uh, human trafficking. But it was like nowadays, human trafficking is almost a buzzword. It's almost lost its power because they lump everything under it now legally. Like if you read the laws, people, normal people would look and get, wait, you know, that that's not trafficking, but legally it is type thing. Um, it falls under that umbrella. So it, it's become so muddied and so um, over-enlarged, the mission creep of it, that it, it's lost its power, but it's everywhere right now. But back then it, it wasn't. And so, you know, I felt like this is something that I wanted to write about, and and, and it, 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 but I didn't want to trivialize it. So I kind of went to the extreme of something that wouldn't have Possibly, I mean, the odds of it happening were very, very low. But it was a way to highlight the reality. That but you had to really want to write about it because you know this is going to take you. It's going to take a year of your life to do this. Yes, but I need something, right? It's not like I'm not going to write something. It's I'm going to write something and take a year of my life regardless. So let's find something that I feel is worthwhile and interesting and that uh, fits to the story. So it's not something that I have a bee in my bonnet about and I just want to go on a rant about it. Something that is is a good topic of discussion that needs to be talked about or that others might find fascinating, but that I'm also interested in enough that I can spend the next year of my life, you know, living in that world. So with the catch, um, I realized that not very many um, stories really took place on the high seas. And I'd been, I wanted to take Monroe back to Africa and I wanted to take her to uh, the, the other side of Africa, the east side, where I had also lived before, Cruel Guinea. And I felt that rather than trying to go into, you know, corruption and, you know, all the things that you deal with in, in Africa, um, in those countries, it was, let's, let's take more of a big picture look at this. And that's what led me to piracy. And I had at that time, like, while I was still writing The Doll, I happened to read an article about a man um, who was a sea captain, and he was at the time like the world's only maritime repossession specialist. So he he had just been he had just published his memoirs. It's called was called book called Seized, and it was the tales that he told about how he would. Okay, so in in maritime law, um, ships often get seized to satisfy some debt or whatever. But um, in, in corrupt countries like small banana republics and stuff, they, they do it almost as a business. Well, they'll find, you know, some corrupt judge to sign off on a corrupt seizure warrant. And then the whoever's masterminding this thing will use it as an excuse to be able to sell off the ship 
and that's where they make their money. And so in cases where, you know, he's also a lawyer. <laughs> this guy's done everything. He's a pilot. He's a lawyer. He's, he's an oil worker. He's just got this fascinating story. And um, so he, uh, he would look at the case, and if he felt that they really had wronged the ship owners, he would actually go in and steal the ship back. And so, so, and, and he was not like special forces or anything. He's this tiny little man. I actually have a picture of him. Uh, if you remind me, I'll try and, and get it to you for this post. Um, he's so much fun. And um, he's a small man. He's very, 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 very intelligent and very creative in thinking outside the box. And, you know, he grew up very, very poor and had nothing. And, and he's just always found unique ways to put his skills to use. And so, yeah, the memoir was him of, uh, you know, these these the tales and they're 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 somewhat scripted for Hollywood, but they're not because if it was a if it was a Hollywood thing, they would have totally taken everything that he did and made it far more intense. And you know some of these stories were you know bribing prostitutes to hang out with the guards that he could get his men onto the ship, and then they had this backup plan and that backup plan. Another one involved uh, there was only one hill where you could get really good cell sell uh, coverage. So they bribed the voodoo doctor to go up there and cast a hex on the hill so that the people who would try and call the authorities couldn't reach them. So they had enough time to cut the, <laughs> cut the anchors and get the ship out of the bay, you know? And, and so Hollywood would like totally overdo all of that. And they're like, we need more excitement. We need more of this. And it's like, no, this is how it actually really happened. Sometimes it really was just outsmarting a few drunk guards, you know? So it, People might go into it expecting it to be more than what it was, but for him, right there on the ground, it was life or death. You know, if he got caught, it would, he would spend the rest of his his life rotting in some you know bare cell dungeon. So anyway, I read I read about it, and I I did what I do is I contacted him and I said, hey, I am an author, and I'm thinking that for my next book, I want to write a story about. Uh, you know, that takes place, that uses maritime law and, and everything. And, um, you know, I would really love the opportunity to talk with you. And he invited me to New Orleans, which was where he was living at the time. And, um, and so I went and we hung out for like two days. And I just picked his brain, picked his brain, picked his brain, listened to his stories, listened to his stories. And that's how I do a lot of research is just listening to other people. And it, and it, it it's like, I don't always absorb everything right there that they're saying. But after I'm gone, my brain just sort of starts processing it, piecing it all together, and it all, all creates a picture. So my why was that I'd already was looking into doing something uh, maritime-related, uh, piracy, particularly Somali, Somali pirates. And then I stumbled across that book, and it cemented it, and it took me in that whole other direction. So that was for that one. Fascinating. Well, I, I guess... We could go on forever, but... I've got lots more stories, but I know that's not what this podcast was supposed yes, to be about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, though, um, for some of our listeners out there, if, if you could post your why, maybe for your most recent story, why did you pick something about that story and post it in the Taylor Stevens fan club group? That would be, that would be interesting. I'm always fascinated with, with how people go through the why process. It's, it's an interesting, you know, really it's an interesting funny. thing. As you said that I started thinking about why this, why that. And, and sometimes my case is it's a, like, I didn't know there was going to be a second Jack and Jill book when I wrote the first one. So in the first one, the twins are, um, you know, there's an invitation to go to, Ber to meet in Berlin. 
Well, I, I didn't really have a why for why to put them in Berlin because it was irrelevant to that story. But now, as I start to write the second story, that's already been put into print. I can't change that. So now I've got to come up with a why. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got to fit inside the plot, and it has to feel organic. And if I'm going to move them from one location to the next, that why now also has to be organic and you know feel legitimate. And there's a lot of whys I've got to come up with retrospectively. So there's that side of it. Too. Interesting. Yeah. So that that's sort of the flip side of it. What can happen if you don't have a why for, for what you do at the end of a book? <laughs> yeah, it happens to me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. There's a good chance we won't be here next week, but um, we might. It just depends on how things go in, in Germany. And if we can pull it off, we will. If not, we will be back in your ear in two weeks. So stick around, don't go anywhere, don't forget about us, and we'll see you again soon.